Okay, let's pray. Merciful God, King of glory, we are grateful to You, Father, for bringing us here around Your Word because of Your Son. We ask, Lord, that You would guide us by Your Spirit to truth. And Lord, that we would be changed by what we learn, by what we see in Your Word. That it wouldn't be merely an information gathering, but a transformation of the heart by beholding Your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I have one question this morning, and it was uh, saved because our brother was not feeling well, so glad that you are now. So, okay, here's the question. There are many, many verses in Scripture that command us to meditate on Scripture. But I don't know of a verse that even suggests we should read quickly or briskly through the Bible. So aren't read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year programs, in fact, anti-biblical? It's a really good question. I mean, you think about what the Bible says as a whole regarding reading the Scripture. And over and over and over again, we're told to meditate. Uh, Psalm 1, for example, perhaps one of the most familiar verses regarding this. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditating. Somebody give me a definition of meditate. Obviously we don't mean what the Hindus and the Buddhists and the spiritualists mean. What does the Bible mean by meditate? Think upon repetitively. Yeah. Anybody want to add to that? Right. That's a very uh, familiar illustration. The cow that re-chews the, the cud. Um, and it's the idea, like I said, going over it again and again, thinking about it. Yeah, to go deeper in a train of thought. All, all of this is meditating. Now, can you do that with a chapter? Can you do that with several chapters? Can you do that if you're reading four or five chapters a day? Or, uh, I mean, the very nature of meditation is a slow process, right? By nature, meditation demands, in fact, 
what's, what's, what's the, the S word in the Psalms that is often used after a, a certain phrase? Selah. Selah. And what does that mean? Pause. Think about that. So the very nature of meditation causes us to go slow. It's an excellent question. And yet, Bible reading plans in a year abound in Christianity. So where do we get the justification for doing this? In fact, is it actually going against the whole design of what God tells us in His Word? Good question. Relevant. How many of you have started a expose everybody? How many of you have started a Bible reading in a year program this year? Yeah, you're trying to get through it. Um, so, <clears throat> I first let's go to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9. And we're going to read 9 through 13. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So here we see that it was actually commanded to... This was every seven years, year Jubilee, when the slaves are being released from their uh, labor to gather all the people, men, women, and little ones. I like that, that they had the little, little ones included. Don't, don't put them off in, in children's church, nothing against children's church, but don't put them off to the side. And it's too much for them. And think of the law. I mean, think about going over the Levitical law about things like we're going to talk about later, sexuality. And death and stoning and, I mean, high things of worship and the, the priesthood and their garments and the tabernacle and all of that. And it, in God's mind, it wasn't too much. And they were to do this all in one sitting. Did you, did you see that? Assemble the, the people and read this. So, there is, if, we, if you will, uh, a precedent for reading through great chunks of Scripture by command of God 
even in the midst of um, others. And, and here's the thing. In God's mind, it was not impossible to hear all of that information, all of that truth, hear it, understand it, and apply it. It says that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And it said twice, verse 12 and verse 13, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Now in this, everyone's not even reading. It's just one person reading. Um, You know, this would be like turning on your audio Bible and just listening to it or just letting it play for your whole family. Uh, But the idea of the word being put in, in large chunks, is something that was practiced uh, in the people of Israel by the command of God. And then we're familiar with 1 Timothy 4.13. Probably more familiar with that one than that Deuteronomy passage. Somebody want to read that? 1 Timothy 4.13. public reading of scripture. So again, there is this um, it's this idea of reading passages of scripture, not so much pausing, not so much meditating, not so much um, even studying. This is just reading the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? By the word of Christ. So there was a reality in the life, both in the Old and New Testament, with a gathering of the people where there would be a reading. And we looked at, uh, I forgot how many weeks ago it was now, where here is the, the king, the command to the king that he was to have the word, he was to copy it, and he was to read it. Anybody remember? Daily. Every single day he was to read the word of God. And this was the, the king. And the king was to do this. And the king was to be an example. The king was to be a model to follow. The way that the king went, all of Israel went. And it was said of the, of the kings who were wicked that they made Israel to sin. Why? Because the, the, the people would follow the leader. And so if the leader was going astray, if he was worshiping idols, if he was setting up high places, if he was going against the, the command and the will of God, then the people would follow. And it was, it was said so. And so when the king did what was right, think of Josiah, think of um, Hezekiah, think of David, when, he, when they did what was right, again, the people would follow. And so uh, here is this reality that Reading the Bible every single day was a responsibility of the king. And the hope was that that would be a thing that would spread. Now, is there a danger in reading the scriptures too quickly? Absolutely. One of the dangers is we go through our reading plans for the sake of going through our reading plans. 
we're reading the chapter just for the sake of reading the chapter. Oh, it, it, here's, here's my chunk for today. I did it. Checklist. Okay, put my Bible away. Uh, it's just, a, it's a just putting the information in and not really thinking and not really pausing and not really actually chewing or soaking in or, or, or gathering what is, uh, what is on the page. But here's my um, caution for not doing something like this. Will you ever read the whole Bible? I mean, if, if all we do, because you can chew on one verse for weeks. Right? I mean, has anyone ever done Have you ever just had one verse, one passage? Uh, Paul Washer talked about you can take John 3.16, for example, and just say, for God and just stop there and just meditate on who God is and the attributes of God. And then you say, God loved. And then you can spend years doing nothing but just thinking about God's love and how he loves and where he loves and who he loves and how he loves and the different ways. And so you could literally just camp out in one verse for an entire year. You could really just let it all soak in. And wouldn't that be bad? Uh, Would that be unbeneficial? No, it wouldn't. But let me add this, or rather not but, and let me add this. We also want to, God has given us his word. He's given us all of his word to know the full counsel of God, to know the mind of God, to know what he said. It's going to require us to go through the whole thing, and that will, uh, to some extent, require us to read chunks at a time. And so my recommendation is that you should do not either or, but both and. There should be, uh, and, and this is what I was trying to bring out in that message, that there should be the, the hard work of, you know, again, where the king, he copied out these things by hand, um, Hard work, thinking through, meditating on, and there should also be the daily just reading for the sake of enjoying God, knowing what he said, seeing how he works. Uh, So my recommendation has always been that it should be both and and not either or. Um, Follow-up questions or... Other thoughts? Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. Uh, I was thinking of Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And yeah, they wouldn't have had their own personal copy. It was the practice of these young Jewish boys to memorize the first five books of the Bible. And they would have it with them. 
and, and that was part of their rite of passage, part of their learning. So yeah, the fact that we have a complete copy of the Scripture for ourselves, to whom much is given, much is required. And it is really an amazing thing. And again, you know, these are things that we've talked about before. These, these other people in the world who historically or even current day who, who have not or do not have a complete copy of God's word. And when they get it, how they respond, the joy and how they just want to feast. And there's a part of us uh, where we just want to gobble it all up. We just want to eat it. You just want to enjoy it and say, wow, I mean, God is so kind in, in, in how he's communicated to us that we have um, law and we have history. There's narrative. There's poetry. There's prophecy. There is gospel. There's epistle. There's direct teaching and illustration, parable. And this is revelation. There's all of this diversity in his word. And to just say, oh, I just want to enjoy it. And, and one verse takes you to another verse. And one passage takes you to another. And you can just really enjoy. And then there's that slow chew uh, as, as well. And so because we do have the whole of the Bible, it's a really good point, uh, all the more uh, should we be doing both of these. And, and, I, and I find that, like most things, every Christian is stronger on one side, right? So some Christians are really good about reading through the whole thing, but they don't stop and chew. And others are really good about stopping and chewing, but they don't go through the whole thing. And uh, there are some believers who have been Christians for decades and have never read the entire Bible. And then there are people who read the entire Bible, but you say, okay, well, tell me about some of it. And like, well, I can't really do that, but I've read it cover to cover. So... As usual, uh, balance is best. And, uh, yeah. Any other thoughts? Any other? It was actually uh, David Butterball who came and spoke mm. that one weekend. He spoke about memorizing scripture. And it actually helped me a ton. Mm. Absolutely. So the lecture or the lecture sermon is in the archive of YouTube. Anyone wants to watch it? Yeah, that was very helpful. And you know, one of the ways that I memorized, well, one of the ways that was helpful for me to memorize portions of the book of Romans is every day on my way to work, I would just listen to it. Just listen to it over and over and over and over again. And then there are other ways to memorize portions of Scripture is by, um, again, I got John 3.16 on my head, for, and it's like you emphasize each word in the sentence. So for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, for God so, and you do that just with one passage and you'll memorize it. It'll stick. Or you can turn it into a song. That's something that our sister Kendra uh, does. She puts scripture to song, and we have scripture songs, and that's another way. So there are a lot of ways to memorize, and 
Yeah, that is definitely a part of meditation. Any other thoughts or questions about that? You have a question, buddy? Okay. Yes. Faith really does come by hearing. And uh, in, in Hebrews, I was, I was going to put Kenzie on the spot, but he's being a good daddy. Uh, I forget where it is written, but it says something like, it's written somewhere. What's, what's the language? Yes, and remember, you know, the chapters and verses, the, these breaks, that was something that was not divinely inspired. So, yeah, yeah. verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. <laughs> what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yeah. He could have said the psalmist said, or David said, or this is the whatever number psalm. Yeah, somewhere. Amen. Yeah. Psalm 119 is filled with those requests. And I think I had pointed this out sometime before, but it's striking to me. If you turn to Psalm 119, it's striking how often there is a request from the writer of this psalm for God to help him understand, teach him, show him, give you a... um, Verse 18, probably the most familiar one. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes 
that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. These are prayers. Uh, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. He's not assuming that he can enlarge his own heart. Lord, I need you because we know our hearts, right? We, we know the reality of being weighed down with the cares of this world and sin and temptation. Lord, I need you to open my heart, enlarge it wide enough to receive the truth. Oh, I, I had them uh, highlighted. I was like, I think it was orange. It's pink. So let's, let's, listen to these. Verse 27. Um, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Make me understand. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law. 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments. 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verse 64, at the end of it, teach me your statutes. 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So, Lord, even the suffering that I go through, there is this reality in the psalmist's mind that, Lord, you're the one that I am depending on, relying on to teach me, to show me, to open my heart, to open my eyes, to open my mind, to see, to learn, to understand. And, and, and that's the heart that we need to approach the Word of God with. It, we, we don't have... This is a supernatural book, and it requires supernatural help. Uh, there's something about the purposeuity of Scripture that is very clear. You can read it. You can understand what it says. But remember what the, the Scripture says, that you know, these things are spiritually discerned. We, we are dependent on the Spirit of God to show us the deep truth of the Word of God, lest we just walk away with information and not revelation, not understanding, not heart change. Because isn't that what y'all want? Like when you go to the Word of God, like don't you want your heart to be changed? Don't you want your life to be different? I mean, you, you, you want to rise from whether you're chewing and meditating or reading chunks. You want to rise from that different than when you sat down. And what do we think? That we can do it? Well, I'm saved, so, you know, I have the Spirit. That's, that's, that's all I need. Well, in the psalmist's mind, he didn't think that he was able to do this without help. And he repeatedly, again, I didn't go through all of them, but he just repeatedly is pleading with the Lord to please Give me understanding. Give me understanding. Show me. Teach me. And I think if we had more of that, and what is it that we want to be shown? Lord, show me your son. Right? Wouldn't you have loved to be with those disciples on the road to Emmaus as Jesus opened up the word 
concerning himself. Here I am. Here I am, and there's I am over there, and that points to me, and that speaks of me, and this is about me, and that there. I mean, wow, and it said, didn't our hearts burn within us? I want my heart to burn within me when I read the scripture. Not me. Like, like we brought out before, the one who trembles at my word. This is the one I will look to. Trembles at my word. Well, how are we going to tremble? We could try to force ourselves to tremble. Or we could really plead with the Lord to, to do something in us differently than, than has already been done. So that we grow from one degree of glory to the next. And it's through the Word. It's through the Word. Because in the Word we behold the face of the Lord Jesus. It's in the Word that we see our God. It's in the Word that we understand and we drink deeply has been made. Okay. Any other? I was, I was thinking of the fact that the Bible sometimes refers to the Word of God as milk because you cannot, you're not there yet to teach about it. Yeah, that's good. That's, yeah. Sometimes it's milk, sometimes it's meat. Yeah, Melchizedek. I'd like to take you on some deeper things, but... I know that really, you know, context there is the teaching, but it's the word he's teaching. One more word of caution and encouragement. And again, especially for, you know, preachers, evangelists, whatever. Why am I getting into the word? Because I could get into the word simply for the purpose of talking to y'all. You get into the word simply for the fact of creating a lesson for our children. Or for having answers for that unbeliever we're going to have a meeting with and that's not bad to get in the word to have something to teach or to something to explain or have an answer but if that's our primary reason then we're not getting into the word to know him we're getting into the word to know things about him we're getting in the word for the sake of other people. We, we can get in the word because we want to correct somebody. But we were made to know him. We were made to worship him. And so there's this hunger and a thirst. Like, Lord, I want to know you. And I think that's what was driving the Puritans in this meditation uh, because they really sought to know their God. And that can get lost. That can get lost. It can happen to all of us. So, 
be on guard against that. Okay. Any other questions? That's a good question. <laughs> nope. But let's look at it. Romans 1, 16. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you, Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so what, you know, Martin Luther is the, the go-to example of thinking this means the righteousness of God in his... Uh, yeah, the attribute of his righteousness and how that brings terror. Because, okay, God is righteous. He hates all sin. And the only thing that he accepts is perfection. And when Martin Luther was studying this, that weighed down upon him. The righteousness of God as an attribute was terrifying and something he could never measure up to. And it said that it, it made him hate God because as much as he sought to attain to that righteousness, he utterly failed and he was never able to measure up to it. And it was in, um, you know, going deeper and that chewing and meditating that we were just talking about that he understood that um, this this righteousness, of course, co connected to the gospel is God giving us righteousness and especially tied to what we'll see in Romans 3 of how in former times and in previous times that like Lord had he just kind of passed over former sins and how that could uh, cause the name of God to be blasphemed. Like, how are you forgiving David for his uh, adultery and murder? And you say your sin has been put away. How do you just forgive like that? doesn't seem righteous that doesn't seem just so how are you you know that's what it says both the just justify he ah. how is it worded uh, okay Romans 3 21 and this is directly connected to verse 18 because I'm sorry, 17, because that is really the foundation. 16 and 17 is the foundation for the whole book, kind of a, a summary. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ uh, to all, for all who believe. So 
not through works, not through law keeping, apart from the law. Which is strange because, right, law, I mean, you obey the law, there is righteousness there. If you keep the whole law, that was the old covenant. If you're careful to do all that, you will be blessed, you will receive all this. Uh, but who can keep it? But the righteousness of God, apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this is, this is it right here. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this righteousness is the gospel. It's this, this gift of righteousness. Jesus obeys the law, says, here, <laughs> you have my righteousness. You don't, uh, you, you, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You failed utterly. You have sinned. All have sinned and fall short. However, I'm going to declare you just, not in a way that makes me unrighteous, but in a way that makes me completely justified because I'm satisfied in Jesus. And I'm the justifier. I'm the one who is supplying you with it. And so this is why it's, this is cause for shouts of rejoicing that is by faith. Uh, and the righteous will live by faith which he was quoting, what was that, Habakkuk? Um, I believe that's how I explained it to some degree. That's the beauty, right? And, and you see that, that repetition. This was to show God's righteousness. It was to show his righteousness because as, I mean, think of the host of heaven seeing the holy, holy, holy God who threw down angels who sinned once, who rebelled against him once. And here are these creatures from the dust who, as R.C. Sproul said, commit cosmic treason every single day, rebel against his royalty, his majesty, and he let them live. And not only let them live, but you, you, you bring them close? You, you forgive them of everything? They're going to be with you? You call them by their name. You put your spirit in them. How is that okay? Settle down. I put forward my son as propitiation, so my wrath that's for them is satisfied in pouring it out upon my son. His righteous life is satisfying my righteous requirement of the law. And by grace and generosity, I Freely, not because through the corridor of time I saw those who would obey me and those who would be loyal and faithful. No, by no means of any merit within them, I willfully and intentionally elect them, choose them, set my love upon them. No good in them, completely because I am good. It glorifies His grace. It glorifies. I mean, it's, it's I mean, amazing. Amazing grace. Good, yeah, good question. And remember, 
that, <laughs> that passage is on the heels of there is none righteous. That is the conclusion of two and a half chapters of everybody is sinful. Nobody has an excuse. All are condemned. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Everybody is guilty. You have nothing good in you. I mean, Paul just repeatedly, like a, like a lawyer, just uh, exhibit A, exhibit B, all the way to exhibit Z. All mankind has no righteousness. And now he talks about the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith, by faith, in Christ. Amazing. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Any of his responses. Mm. Two, if he did if he did not sin, then why did Elijah condemn him? Three, if he did sin, why did God say that he was right in his responses? Mm. Excellent question. Job. The curious case of Job. Job begins with God declaring, there's nobody like my boy right here. This one is unique. And we see it in his life. And he unleashes the serpent upon him. Right? The devil says, yeah, of course he worships you and serves you because you've protected him. Nothing bad happens to him. But if you let something bad happen to him, he's going to curse you to your face. All right, do whatever you want. Don't touch him. Devil goes out. Again, we see the sovereignty of God even over Satan. Satan has to ask permission and is granted. He goes no further than God says. Satan goes out, takes all of his stuff, kills his children. Kills his children, all ten of them. That's something to chew and slowly read. If one of our children was taken from us, it would be the heart-breaking tragedy of our lives. All of them on the same day. And he was a good father. He was one of the few. There are not a lot of good examples of fathers in the Bible, sadly. But Job was one. He was a good father. And they were all taken from him. And after all of that, verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What did he do after all of this? Verse 20, then Job arose. This is his response. Tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. It is not ungodly to weep and mourn and be sorrowful when tragedy strikes. 
But he worshiped still through his tears. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, in all of that, Job didn't sin or charge God with wrong. So those who say, oh, the devil did that. It wasn't God. No, he didn't charge God with wrong, and he said God took away. That's not the end of it. Satan comes back. Skin for skin, he says. I mean, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan thought of the most horrific sickness that he could put upon Job because his goal was to get Job to curse God to his face. So he wasn't um, pulling punches. This is the, the master craftsman of evil and wickedness. He knows mankind. He studied mankind from the beginning. And he said, this is it. This is going to do it. And he struck Job with loathsome sores. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Think about that. Your entire body covered. I was in misery when me and Kinsey were in Haiti and I had like a hundred mosquito bites. It's like, I just can't get any relief. I can't sleep. That was nothing from the bottom of his feet. One of the most sensitive parts of your body to the top of his head. He's completely covered in these sores. And here's his one piece of comfort. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Mind you, he's still mourning his children. He's not over it. (laughs) But that's not the end of his suffering either. His stuff is taken. His children are taken. His health is taken. And then his companion, his helper, who has also lost much. She lost her children too. She's seeing her husband suffer. And Maybe he's going to his wife thinking, okay, she's going to give me some comfort. She's going to point me upward. What does she say? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job was a righteous man. And listen to how he responds to his wife, even in the midst of all that suffering. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. I love how John Piper pointed out, He didn't say, you foolish woman. He said, you speak like one of those foolish women. You know better. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? 
In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So, here we have two accounts of Job not sinning, not charging God with any wrong. And if the story stopped there, then that would be the end. Job would be completely right and justified in what he does. But here's what happens. His friends come, and they, verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. But then Job starts talking out of his anguish, and he starts to curse the day he was born. He starts to say, it would have been better that I would have been born still. Uh, that, in fact, that I would have never even come into this world. I hate my life. It's so miserable. And he begins to go on and on in this. And his friends start saying, well, you know, the only reason you're going through this is because you must have done something wrong. Because everybody knows if you do well... It will go well. And if you don't, you're going to receive some type of punishment. So look, look at your life. You're going through it so badly, you must be dealing with some type of hidden sin that nobody knows about. And that's why you're going through this. And Job then responds to them and starts saying, what? I didn't do anything wrong. And then he starts to say stuff like, I don't deserve this. This isn't right. This isn't fair. And by doing so, now he's justifying himself instead of who? God. And when we get to the end and we are told, um, you know, this, this young, wise man who sat and listened to this uh, <clears throat> for quite some time and didn't say anything because he let the older people speak Job 32 thank you so after they go back and forth the friends are saying you sinned you did something wrong and they get pretty nasty they start saying look that's why your kids are dead I mean it gets it gets pretty ugly and Job is like I want my day in court. I want to stand before God because I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything wrong. And I, if, psh, let, let me stand before him. He, he, he goes too far. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Got to love his righteous anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. That was his sin. He cerned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. That's bad theology. Job doesn't have to do something sinful in order for bad things to happen to him. And you don't have anything to answer except to say that he did something wrong, but you have no proof. You have no evidence. You're just making accusations and claims. He's mad. 
So, in answer to your question, did Job sin? Yes. What was his sin? He justified himself rather than God. Why does it say that he did not sin and charged he didn't do any wrong? Because in the beginning, he didn't. But after that, and after a bunch of chapters of going back and forth with these friends, yeah, sin started coming out of his mouth. Which tells you that, look, even someone as righteous and holy and noble as Job, it's possible for someone like that, if the suffering is great enough, to lose sight of reality. And to start to feel bad and sorry for ourselves and to begin to blame God and accuse God and feel like I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. I didn't do anything wrong. What was me? Why is this happening to me? Um, so you asked three questions. Yes. So where did Job speak of what is right about God? In, in the beginning and at the end, right? And here's the beauty of our God. When you repent, love covers a multitude of sins. Have you ever read what it says of David who always did what was right in my eyes. And you're like, what? Always? What about? What about? There is this. You are justified. So when Job turns from blaming God to saying, I didn't know what I was talking about. I sinned. I thought I knew of you. I hold my hand over my mouth. I was wrong. The mercy of God goes from Look, stand up like a man. You want to, let's, let's talk to, all right, now I'm going to cover you and I'm going to defend you. That's amazing. That's the amazing grace. And, you know, remember, every book points to the gospel. And there is an amazing gospel reality there. We see the sin of Job. We see the burning anger of his friend. But when he repents, when his heart turns toward God and realizes that what he did was wrong, the Lord defends him and says, you spoke of what was right about me. Amazing. Yes. How long did the suffering last? Well, 
I don't know. Uh, maybe someone has more knowledge on the book of Job than I do, but I, I don't know how long it lasted. I don't know how long it was from one trial to the next. I don't know if it was days, if it was weeks, if it was months, if it was a year. I don't know. And how long did this back and forth go? You could read the book of Job in one sitting. So you could say this whole argument happened on one day. And that's possible. Or maybe it was over the course of days. But I... I don't know. And he, he, the, the, one of the encouraging things for me about Job is in the midst of this, we can still pull out these verses that shows he hasn't lost everything. He's not completely blind. Um, I know that my Redeemer lives. Right? I mean, you, you get that. And you say, in the midst of all of this, he was still, he was still Job. Um, but he, he says, yeah, well, I think that'll be enough. We're, we're at 11. May God help us to respond like Job did in the beginning and at the end. Father, we don't know if the trials of Job are around the corner for any of us. We don't know if you're having a conversation with the evil one even now to give permission to do unspeakable things in our lives to show how valuable and precious you really are. But Lord, we do know this that we're not strong enough to resist the temptations of the evil one and we need you. We need you to understand your word. We need you to stand in the midst of suffering and trial. We need you this morning to worship in spirit and in truth. We need you at all times, Lord. We need you. And so please draw near to us. Keep our eyes upon you. For the sake of your Son, in your great name, amen.